I'm not sure if you have noticed, but we live in strange times. As Pastor Wayne started off his message with last time, we live in a time of confusion and uncertainty. And what's really bizarre is that we've now gotten to the point in our culture that we think that confusion and uncertainty is actually a noble thing. The fact that we are uncertain about truth is, is seen now as a value. If you were to go up to, say, to someone and say that you were uh, convinced about something and that you absolutely know it's true, people might look at you as if you're kind of weird, that you're not enlightened. If you say you can't know something for sure, you're seen as interesting and complex and sophisticated. Even in evangelical Christian circles, this has become the new thing. Uncertainty is, is celebrated as a kind of humility. It's seen as a, as a good quality. The wife of one popular pastor was quoted in the magazine Christianity Today as saying, I grew up thinking that we figured out the Bible, that we knew what it means. Now, I have no idea what most of it means. And you feel like life is big again. Like life used to be black and white, and now it's in color. So there it is. Uncertainty is celebrated. Ambiguity and mystery is embraced. Like seeing life in color, where before it was all black and white. And certainty about the Bible is equated with arrogance. But in our study of the letter of 1 John, we've seen that certainty about various things is essential. John wrote this letter for the exact purpose that believers could be assured of various truths. He wants them to be assured that they are believers. He wants to remove doubt. And so our question this morning is, can we know anything 100% for sure? without a doubt. The intellectual, enlightened, uh, call themselves emergent types, are saying, no, you can't, nor should you even try. But as Phil Johnson has pointed out, if they are right, then assurance about salvation would be the ultimate conceit. But I think this whole culture of uncertainty that we live in makes John's words even more poignant and more relevant. In this whole letter, he's been talking about the fact that we can know we are Christians by certain realities. And Pastor Wayne said last time that the gospel, or this first letter of John, the word know, K-N-O-W, is mentioned 39 times. But that's what this whole thing is about. He wants to give us this assurance. So just look at a a couple of um, passages the things that John has written to, to, to show that. He says in chapter 2, verse 3, 1 John 2, verse 3, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. By this we know. Chapter 3, verse 14, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Go over to chapter 4, verse, verse 13. By this we know 
that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And over to chapter 5, verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. And this is just really a, a small sampling, but it becomes clear that this is John's point throughout this letter to assure these people that they are in fact in Christ by, by certain tests. And now we come to the end of this letter. And here John sums up his letter by saying that there are some things that we can know for sure. So read with me, or follow along as I read chapter 5, verse 18, right to the end. 1 John five eighteen. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, and in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This was uh, an easy passage to, to outline, because John starts those first three verses by saying, We know. And so as John signs off this letter that we've been going through for a number of months now, he says that our relationship with God gives us the assurance that we can give, that we can live a distinctive life in this world. In this age of uncertainty, this is a very apropos passage of scripture because there are three affirmations here of which all Christians can be certain. The first is the certainty of a new ability in verse 18. John's first affirmation is that we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Now we've learned already that he means here, it's not that they'll never sin. It's talking about a continual, habitual, persistent practice of sin. What John is saying is that a genuine, born-again Christian will not continue in a pattern of sin. A true Christian will not continue in persistent, sinful habits. They will come under conviction. Yes, there will be times when we fail, we all do, but we will not persist in that failure. And so this isn't talking about the absence of sin, it's talking about the general direction of our lives as believers. A Christian's life will be moving in a direction away from sin on the one hand and then toward holiness, toward godliness on the other hand. Where before you may have been comfortable in your sin and didn't give it a second thought, now the, the, the Spirit of God lives inside of you and will convict you of sin. He won't let you get comfortable. There will be an inner desire to stop because God now lives in you through Christ in the Holy Spirit. The new birth results in a new behavior. There will be a marked change, a, a new ability to see sin as an offense against God that wasn't there before. And so John just says this as a fact. We know that no one who is born of God continues to sin. For you that profess to be Christians, is this true of you? Is this transformation evident in you? John is saying that you can't profess to be a believer in Jesus Christ and live in the same way that unregenerate Christians live. You can't become a Christian and not change. That's impossible. It's incoherent. 
then notice the next part of verse 18. Not only can we know that we're a Christian because we don't keep on sinning, but it also says that this a new ability wasn't generated on our own. We don't keep sinning because Jesus keeps us. Look, it says, but he who was born of God protects him. Now, this is a, a great truth on our security, but it can be a little confusing if you just look at it at first. It says, everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. Now, this is, seems to be talking about one person, someone who is born of God, but it's talking about two different people here if you look at it a little closer. There's a contrast. In the first part, we... Christians are the ones who are born of God, but in this part, the he who is born of God is talking about Jesus. So it's Jesus who keeps him, and the him is the Christian. My translation of this, to make it a little bit simpler, is we know that no Christian keeps on sinning, but Jesus protects the Christian. So not only are we transformed, but Jesus Christ himself protects us from going back into those sinful patterns. Protects is, uh, it's actually a wrestling term. In amateur wrestling, which I heard a couple of months ago, has now been taking, taken out as an Olympic sport, which is kind of a strange thing because it was one of the original Olympic sports. But the rules of wrestling, to me, are very difficult to figure out. Maybe we need uh, Landon Lloyd to come up here and explain, explain that a little bit. But I tried to read them, <laughs> and I still don't understand <laughs> But the only thing I figured out is that you get anywhere from one to five points when you put a hold on someone. Now, I'm not very proud to admit this, but I used to watch professional wrestling when I was a lot younger. And I remember different kinds of holds, like the claw or the sleeper. These were called submission holds. And once the person gave in, the match was over. They were in an unbreakable hold. Now that's kind of what this means. Jesus has an unbreakable hold on us. Not in the sense of, of forcing us to submit. But in the sense of not letting go of us. Of protecting us. In spite of anything that comes along. This is our security. Christ is our security. His, his keeping is our security. His protecting power. His, his love protects us from harm. He, he keeps us in his grip, as it were. If you're a Christian, you can know that he protects you. But why do you need Jesus to keep you? Well, it tells us right in the next line, so that the evil one does not touch you. It literally means that Satan cannot fasten himself to you. He can't lay a hold on you and keep his grip on you. So if you think of it that way, these are really great truths and help us live victoriously as believers. Satan could conceivably destroy us if this wasn't true. But this says if you're born of God, you can have confidence. You can know that Jesus keeps you and that the evil one can't keep his grip on you. That is a great assurance for us that struggle with sin. And all of us do. The second thing that Christians can be certain of is that they have a new identity. Look at verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
It's talking about two relationships here. The first is that Christians are assured that we are from God. John is is summarizing here what he said throughout this letter. We know that we're part of his family. We've we've passed the tests now. We've we've loved others as we ought. We've believed in God. We've obeyed the commandments of God. And, And because of those things, we can be assured that we are his children. Don't pass by those words too easily. You are from God. You've been adopted into the family of God. John wants you to know that you are truly God's son, that you are truly God's daughter. Do you have that assurance? Do you feel that assurance? John has written this so that you can know for sure. He wants you to know who you are and whose you are. He wants you to know that you belong to God and that you have a whole new power and ability now that you're uh, unbreakably connected to Christ. Do you know that you belong to a, a new family? Do you realize that as a Christian you have a new identity? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says you are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. A change takes place once you're in Christ. We talked about that transformation earlier. You, you don't look the same. You don't talk the same. You have new desires. You have new goals. You have, a, you have a new name. You're not just Friesen or Wicks or Niles, Bergstrom, Krauss. You're Christian. You have a new name. You carry the name of Christ. You have a completely new identity. He wants you to be sure of that. Because not everyone can have that same assurance, right? You see what it goes on to say? The same truth doesn't extend to everyone. There's a, there's a flip side that's also true, and that's that 19b, the rest of verse 19 there, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This is the other reality. Those people who are not Christians are not born of God and are not protected by God. They lie in the power of the evil one. Literally, they lie in the lap of Satan. Notice here that there's no third option. In typical John faction, everything is black and white. There are no shades of gray in between. Earlier in their letter, he's written about light and darkness. He's written about truth or lies. He's written about love or hate. The spirit of God, the spirit of Antichrist. Children of God, children of the devil. There are no middle options. This is not life in color. We need to take this seriously. Are you of God or are you in the world? Because if you cast your lot with the world, there's a, there's a very, very real and present danger that's lurking. And I think many people are, are oblivious to it sometimes. Just look at that statement again. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Think of that statement. It really gives Satan an amazing place of influence, doesn't it? God in his sovereignty has, has permitted him to have a, have a huge chunk of real estate. Someone has said, Satan is the world's pastor. Ephesians 2.2 calls him the prince and power of the air. The air that we breathe, the atmosphere that we live in is contaminated by evil contaminated by the influence of the devil. 
2 Corinthians 4.4 calls him the God of this age. We live in evil times. Ephesians 5.16, the days are evil. Jesus himself called Satan the ruler of this world. This is the world we live in. This is, this is what you're up against if you just sort of let yourself drift. For us that say we, we are Christians, we need to be careful about how much we keep one foot in the door of the world. Listen, we all know that the, that the, that the temptation is, is alluring, that the, that the pull is, is almost magnetic to conform to the world's system, the world's values, the world's activities. But if we aren't vigilant, if we get complacent, if we don't watch out, we can start to value what the world values. It happens very subtly. We start to do what the world does. Satan himself is very subtle. And we need to watch out that we don't get trapped. It can happen quickly. And so I simply warn us all, me included, to be careful. What are the things that you are letting your eyes land on? What are you watching? What are you allowing your children to watch? How about your activities, your, your leisure? What about your priorities? you look at what you've done the past month with your discretionary time, would it show a changed life with a new identity or would it show a life that's being conformed to the world and has not been transformed? Do you look any different than the world? Now, before you stand up and say, hold on, pastor, I I already know where you're going to go. You're going to say, well, we still live in the world. And that's true. I'm not saying we need to become uh, hermits, that we need to move up into the, in, go to the west there and move up into the hills. But as Christians, we live in a constant tension where on the one hand we're told to come out from the world and to be separate, and on the other hand we're told to be salt and light. And how we, how we marry those two commands is not simple. It's not straightforward. It can be complicated. John Piper helps us out a bit. He says we should be pilgrims and we should also be indigenous. He says pilgrims know they don't fit in. This is not our primary home. We're we're out of step, out of sync with the culture. On the other hand, we're called to be indigenous, taking on in some measure the culture where we live. If we simply conform to the culture, we wouldn't be salt and light to the culture. If we don't conform at all, the salt would remain in the salt shaker and the, and the light would remain hidden under a basket, end quote. We're pilgrims and yet we're indigenous, we're, we're natives. So how do we resolve the, the tension? The answer is somehow to find the right balance where we stay true to our biblical convictions, we stay firm to them, yet at the same time we have compassion with the lost and find a way to speak into our culture without getting contaminated by it. Just remember, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The world lies in the power of the evil one. Yes, Satan has been defeated on the cross. Yes and amen, he he only has as much power as, as God permits him to have, but be careful not to take him lightly. He's still an active force in this world. If you are not a Christian, you need to be aware of the danger. 
you probably don't know this, but you lie in the power of the evil one. James Boyce says, most people are free agents, but in their imagined freedom, they choose to ignore the danger and fall into the sphere of Satan's power. And so the remedy for you is to put your trust in Jesus Christ, the one who died to deliver you from this world, the one who died to take you out of this world and and unto himself. For you that are Christians, you can number yourselves among those who can know for sure that you are of God. A line in the sand has been drawn between you and and this world system that, that once had power over you. You're now going in a different direction from the world. And so you need to be careful not to drift back into the world. The whole book of Hebrews is about that, those, these warnings, not to let yourself drift. Even though you exist in this world, you no, no longer ought to live like it. That was all part of the past. You're a new creation. You're a new creation. Don't ever let that truth get old. We know that we are from God. You are a privileged member of God's family, adopted into his family through Christ. Cherish that. Thank God for giving you that place of honor. You're a child of God, adopted into his family. So you have the certainty of a new ability in which you have been transformed or being kept by God. You have the certainty of a new identity where you have this relationship with God. But you also have the certainty of a, of a new knowledge. Look at verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. The Son of God has come and has given us understanding. For a final time in this letter, John writes about the importance of the incarnation. The Son of God has come. As Christians, we know that Jesus has come. We know he's God. And this is the, the best certainty of all. Jesus is Christianity. It wouldn't be Christianity without Christ. Jesus Christ is central to our faith. Chapter 4, verse 14 says, The Father sent the Son, why? To be the Savior of the world. Without Jesus, there's no Savior, there's no salvation. There's no chance of being delivered from death, being delivered from this world system. Only Jesus Christ can provide what we all desperately need. And and in this verse here, you, you see two things that we wouldn't have without Christ. The first is the knowledge of God. We are desperate to know God as believers. This, this verse tells us the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Without Jesus, we could not know God. We are incapable of, of spiritual sight until Christ gives us sight. It's Jesus who takes away the veil, takes away the blinders. The best illustration of that is the blind man in, in John chapter 9. If you want, you can turn over there for just a minute. This is an interesting story because this is the one miracle where the person who was sick or blind or lame didn't actually go looking for Jesus. Jesus just walks by and sees him there on the road. And eventually he heals him. But after he's healed, it's interesting that not only does he get physical sight, but he also has spiritual sight. Because of Jesus, because Jesus intervened in his life, 
he suddenly had spiritual understanding. Look at some of his responses there in chapter 9. Verse 17. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? The blind man responds and says, He's a prophet. Well, how did he know that? He was given spiritual sight. Over to verse 33. It's the blind man's talking, or the formerly blind man. He says, If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So he recognizes that Jesus is from God. Verse 38, he says, Lord, I believe. And he worships him. So Jesus comes and sees this blind, unregenerate man on the road. He gives him physical sight, but he also gives him spiritual sight. He would not have understood had it not been for Jesus. He would not have understood that he's a prophet. He would not have understood that he's from God. And he would not ultimately have believed This man did not understand who God was until Jesus came along and opened his eyes. The Son of Man has come so that we may know God. Jesus reveals God to us. If you want to see God, just look at his Son. And he's the true God, says back in 1 John 5. This means genuine, the real thing. God is not something we create in our own mind. Although many people do exactly that very thing. They, they create a God of their own liking. A God of their own, for their own benefit. Nor does our faith rest in intellectual conceptions or in our best guesses or in untested theories. Our faith rests on facts. It rests on historical realities. The Son of God came. That is a historical statement. He came into this world, this physical world. The apostles, as John says in in chapter 1, heard him and saw him and touched him. God himself testifies to him. Chapter 5, verses 1 and following. It rests on the reality of the true God based on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so our desperate need is to know him who is true. We get that understanding we get that experiential knowledge of God in the person of Jesus Christ God in human flesh we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding and so our first need is for knowledge our second need obviously is for salvation the end of verse 20 says this is the true God and eternal life at one time we were spiritually dead we were dead in our trespasses and sins Ephesians 2 Verse 1, the wages of sin is death. And since we've all sinned, there was no hope of life. And it's because we know that the Son of God has come that we also know that we now have eternal life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. In another place, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We know that the Son of God has come. And God sent His Son to bring the hope of life after life. He saves us from the death that is the natural consequence of our sin and grants us eternal life, which could only come in the form of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And now we live in Him. 
the beauty of the incarnation. There's nothing better than that. This is our assurance. We, we know this without a doubt. This is a true, unmistakable fact. Well, 1 John finishes in an interesting way with one last command. There's not a lot of commands in 1 John. There's just a lot of re-emphasizing truths to assure these believers. But here's one right at the end. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. First look, I thought, that's kind of a weird way to end a letter. When you write a letter, you usually finish with, with uh, something like, you know, say hi to so-and-so, or, or I look forward to seeing you again. And then you sign off. And actually, the rest of the letters in the Bible end sort of that way as well. There's usually a, a, a number of final greetings. Even if you flip over to 2 John and 3 John, they end up with greetings. But here he closes off by saying, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Dot, stop. When I first read that, I thought, where did that come from? <laughs> there's no goodbye, there's no nothing, and then, and then where does this thing about idols come from? He hasn't written anything about idols anywhere else in this letter. Why would he end like that? But if we just look a little closer, we'll see that it actually fits right in. As to why he ends with a, why he ends with a warning, I, I see this kind of the same thing as, as the last thing you say to a child before they leave to go to camp or, or, or go away on a, on a long trip somewhere. You know, you're kind of finished with all the hugs and, and the tears and you've told them you, lo- you love them. And, but then just when they're leaving, when they start walking off, you say something like, don't forget to take a shower or call us when you get there or, or don't drive too fast. It's that little bit of advice as they drive away or, or, or as they start walking towards airport security. It's, it's sort of what John does here as he closes. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Well, why idols? The connection is from the verse just before, and specifically to the word true. John has just written that Jesus helps us understand that God is true or genuine. And so he makes this contrast and says, watch out for the false stuff. You know, that, you know the true God, guard yourselves from false gods. So what is an idol? Well, an idol is basically a substitute God. You can kind of take it down to that level. If anything, it's anything that might come between a Christian and Christ. You have to kind of remember that this was written in a city called Ephesus. And, and Ephesus had a big temple where they worshipped a goddess named Diana. And that area around Greece or Turkey, if any of you have traveled there, uh, today is still filled with remains of, of temples and of gods. And in our day, even though the temples lie in ruins, the worship of the gods is still alive and well, isn't it? The Greeks had a god called Narcissus, who, as the mythology goes, fell in love with himself. In our culture, self-identity and self-esteem and and self-love are catchwords. If you go to uh, any bookstore... That will be the, the section that's the biggest. All the books on, on self-esteem and, and of getting to know yourself and of healing yourself and those sort of things. We worship ourselves. We live in a narcissistic culture. There was another god named Bacchus who was the god of pleasure, wine, women, and song. 
And I don't have to tell you how prevalent sexual immorality and fornication and pornography is in our day. And so John's warning is very apropos. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Don't go off to something else is what he's saying. That's John's warning to all of us. Today our, our idols aren't made of wood or metal. An idol could be whatever you give your energy or your money or your time to. It could be your job. It could be your hobby. It could even be your children or your spouse or your friends. It could be a humanitarian project. It's anything that takes center place in your affections. As a Christian, that central place should be reserved for God. When other things take God's place, we're guilty of idolatry. Simple as that. And so as we close this, the, the chapter on this letter, let me encourage you to take inventory of your life. We all need to do that sometimes, don't we? Just to step back and think about the foreign gods that have crept into our lives subtly, perhaps even without us noticing. An easy way to look at that is to ask yourself, what place does, does reading God's Word and talking to God occupy in your life? Is it sort of something you do when you have time, when you think of it? Do you make time to give God a hearing by reading His Word? Do you make time to talk to Him in prayer? I encourage you to, to maybe make a list of the things, of the, of the things that you value. And then, and then do something like you do when you get ready for a garage sale. Call your inventory and get rid of anything that you've put above God. Resolve to restore God to his rightful place. You call him Lord. Is he the Lord of your life? How do you do that? Well, get back to those things. If we're going back to 1 John here, get back to those things that you know for sure. Don't put your trust in things that are temporary, things that will go away. Trust in those things of which you can be certain. The fact that Jesus keeps you from a persistent pattern of sinful living. The fact that you are free from the power of the evil one. The fact that you have a relationship with the true living God through Jesus Christ. Those are the things that you need to put your trust in. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. And guard yourselves by going back to the certainties, those things that you know. Let's bow in prayer.